it's something about this field of study innately is everybody immediately asks the question, well, what would I do? <laughs> right. And we all want to believe we all want to believe that we're on the side that disobeys. Uh, but the statistics bear out that we probably aren't. And so that creates a need to like to recognize when this is happening to yourself. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Hello, friends. James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com in a conversation that's being recorded on the 17th of April, 2019. And today we're going to be talking to a new guest, a first-time guest here on the program, but someone who will be familiar to those who listen to Declare Your Independence with Ernest Hancock, which I'm a regular guest on. You'll probably already know of Davi Barker and his work. He's affiliated with a number of projects and sites and books and other things, Bitcoin, not bombs, and all sorts of other things. But today, for the purposes of today, we'll be directing people to one of his many websites, theblacksale.com. That's sale, S-A-L-E, and that link will be in the show notes. But today we're going to be talking specifically about one of the books that he has written, Authoritarian Sociopathy, which is also the subject of a talk that he's given and articles that he's written. So you'll find a number of things online under Davy Barker's name, with that title. Uh, but today, let's talk about it specifically. Davi, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to be talking about authoritarian sociopathy, and I think people will probably get the gist of where this is heading just from the title alone. But let's introduce sure. the, the topic properly. I note that in your Libertopia 2013 presentation on this topic that uh, is available on YouTube, you start that presentation by saying the reason to study psychology, if you're interested in libertarianism or anarchy, is because factually speaking, your enemy only exists in the mind. Very important sure. point, and one that may be over the heads of some of the listeners. Let's spell that out for people. What do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, it's it's almost a technicality, but it's almost the whole cake, too. Uh, <laughs> if you look at sort of the standard definition of government in Western statecraft, it's generally it's generally something along the lines of uh, that group which claims a uh, monopoly on the legitimate use of force in a given landmass, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of those things are factual claims. A landmass is a factual thing. Force is a factual thing. But legitimate use, <laughs> that is a that's something that only takes place in the mind. <laughs> so um, a lot of what this book is about and I think what a lot of libertarianism is about and anarchy for that matter as well is defining – or redefining or reclaiming what we view as legitimate. Exactly right. So what is legitimate power? How do we decide this? There are a number of psychological experiments over the years mm -hmm. that have been conducted along these lines. And my audience is going to be familiar with the Milgram experiment and the Stanford prison experiment, because I've talked about sure. it a number of times. If people aren't familiar with that, just look it up on my website. Just type in Milgram or Stanford prison into my search bar. You will find the previous uh, times I've talked about it. But I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with those experiments. But one of the things that you do in author authoritarian sociopathy is detail a couple of more recent experiments that people might not know about because they right. obviously haven't received the same amount of publicity. One thing to note about these experiments, they're not as dramatic. They're not as fireworks-inducing yeah. as Stanford or Milgram because of the ethical guideline that uh, changes exactly. that have resulted from experiments like the Milgram experiment or Stanford prison experiment. Let's address that for a moment. So this is actually something interesting. When I first pitched this at Porkfest, I say, if you watch that YouTube video, uh, the APA changed the guidelines and made it illegal, <laughs> right? Well, in the transition from going 
from this pitch, which just was thrown together in 48 hours, to publishing the, the first version of the first edition of the book, I learned that they're not even a government agency. Uh, they are essentially um, – they're an association. They're like a club of psychologists and psychiatrists and other academics, and they write guidelines that affect public funding, but their guidelines aren't law. So that's an important distinction. Um, uh, but yeah, as far as the the most academics, most university professors and things that are doing this kind of research are going to want to abide by their guidelines. And so all of the experiments since then are toned way down. They're not dramatic. They're trying to avoid traumatizing the subjects. And so, so the it, results aren't – It's as, kind of a no-no to make people believe they're killing people and other things <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess. I mean, they push the button themselves, so I sort of think they traumatize themselves. Um, but so, so I don't know. I don't know of anyone else calling it authoritarian sociopathy. I'm th kind of throwing a net around these experiments, and I'm saying these are all measuring the same thing that the Stanford Prison Experiment and the Milgram Experiment are testing, but they're all testing it in different ways. So it's giving us it's giving us a broader picture. It's to giving us more data. And I'm saying, like, let's look at all the data and then let's say, what do we want? What data do we not have that we want to seek out? Right. So all these experiments that we're talking about, Stanford and Milgram and the other ones we're going to be talking about, all come under that umbrella because they're all talking about power and how power manifests in the mind of right. people in these experiments. Um, so let's define terms first, perhaps. What is authoritarian? Okay. What is sociopathy? So this is... A, this is Again, difficult because every psychologist or every researcher is going to define these things differently. Some of the experiments are going to be about corporate power and some of them are going to be about political power. I like to think of it as the the desire to assert your will over someone else's will, to, to literally sort of usurp their authority over themselves. Like if that's your goal, whatever it is, for whatever reason, that's authoritarian. And what I'm suggesting is that if you look at these experiments, that position – uh, what Philip Zimbardo called situational power induces sociopathic behavior in almost everyone, people that wouldn't exhibit it normally. Right. And Zimbardo's talked about the Lucifer effect, as he, he termed it, and, and talked about how mm -hmm. that manifested in very real life in places like Abu Ghraib. Um, some very interesting talks on that subject. So let's get into some of the other experiments. There's one by Dana Carney, which talked about sure, power relations. Sure, you want to start relations. there? Yeah, let's, let's yeah, talk that's, about that. Uh, Power and lying, I think, is what that one was about. It's um, she is from the University of Berkeley, and if I remember correctly, it had something to do with EKGs, or they had them hooked up to something. But they were essentially able to show that if you take a body of subjects and you divide them randomly, like you're the power group and you're the you're the subordinate group, and then you induce them to lie, that essentially. The people who are just randomly given power don't have the same uh, physiological and autonomical responses that you would expect a lie detector to pick up. That essentially you can show a statistically significant difference in the way a subordinate, per, a subordinate class responds to lie detecting techniques and the way that a power class does. And in their case, it actually induces pleasurable responses. Like normally it causes like tapping or anxiety or you exhibit stress when you're lying and they don't have those <laughs> symptoms or at least they have them statistically less uh, in a randomized sampling. 
Right, and it's important, yes, it's important to stress the randomization of this. This isn't a thing where people with power go into the experiment and people without power. No, this no. is an experiment where they sort people randomly into groups of uh, executives and workers, essentially, in a corporate setting. Yeah, in this one, they put on, they put on like a one-hour, essentially, mock business where one person's the boss and the subordinates have to follow orders. And just that is enough to get the sort of juices running in the brain that they respond to lie detectors differently. Like, <laughs> like that's amazing. And I think one of the, the key takeaways, they were, they were measuring stress hormones, cortisol, and, and other um, factors in this. And they found that um, not only did the people in the high power positions who lied um, mm -hmm. not show, exhibit any of the natural physiological symptoms that we associate with lying, like the, that mm -hmm. the lower um, status people exhibited when they were lying, but that the higher status people actually took pleasure in the lying. Yeah, and that was self-reported. That wasn't picked up in the, by the lie detector. That was done in an emotional survey after the experiment. The people in the power group reported feeling happy about lying and the people in the subordinate group report feeling stressed or anxious about it. Right. Yes. And for people who are rightfully skeptical of lie detecting, lie detector technology in general, I think this had more to do with, as you say, EKGs, they were measuring cortisol, they were measuring. I think there um, were four different, there were four yeah. distinct measurements. There right. was, um, there was, uh, watching the video recording and paying attention to ticks and movements like that, that people associate with bodily stress, behavioral, cause that's sort of autonomic. Uh, there was the actual lie detector mechanism. There was self-reporting, and uh, I forget what the fourth one is off the top of my head. There might have only been three. I think there were four. Um, it's all detailed in the book. In sure, yeah, in absolutely. Detail. So people can can look at that. So the um, it's oh reaction a, time, cognitive reaction impairment. Time, yeah. They, yeah, cognitive they, impairment. They, they scored poorly on video game style responses to to reaction time. That if you, if you lie, you're stressed out, and so your body is not as good at reaction time, and they don't diminish that way. Right. Okay, so what do we less. take away from that experiment? What does that teach us? Man, what does that teach us? That teaches us that even if you send an, office, an honest person to office, their incentives in that office are to lie. That they're going to be emotionally, chemically rewarded <laughs> for using their power in deceptive ways, yes. even if they wouldn't have before, even if they never would have before. Exactly. And that's why the randomization is important. This isn't something that's inherent to certain people. This is anyone right. who is randomly selected for a position of authority exhibits these uh, particular traits. That's a fascinating insight. Right. Let's move on to another experiment that you talk about in the book, one uh, conducted by Gerben A. Van Cleef and some associates. Uh, what was this sure. experiment about? Hang on a second. Van Cleef is power and compassion. This is one of my favorites because I think it's kind of the root of the matter. So uh, this is a storyteller and listener scenario where subjects are divided into power and non-power and then they are paired randomly where one is told to tell a story and the other is told to listen while they're hooked up to these same sort of bodily stress test things right and there's and and so if you were the storyteller for example and i was the listener we would both ha be having our emotional state monitored but you would be instructed to tell me a story of personal suffering okay now uh low power individuals if we coupled randomly as two low power individuals 
then uh, I would experience measurable emotional response in relative order right after you do, <laughs> right? Like my, my readout is going to match yours a little bit. High-powered people don't exhibit that trait as much. And, and one of the interesting things about this one was it isn't that they don't see it because they all accurately identify the emotions after the fact in the survey. They just reported not caring. <laughs> so uh, so that's something that happens. It's like it's like a not caring about the little people or not remembering where you came from phenomenon where like once you become in power, you begin to think of yourself as more important. And so their suffering becomes less important. Right. But the other thing was. Uh, if you're a low power storyteller and I'm a high power listener, the results on your suffering on average throughout the experiment are higher <laughs> than any listener with a low power or any storyteller with a low power listener. So my callousness has a measurable effect on the, the increasing of your suffering. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. Um, so what's, what do you think is the takeaway from this? Oh man. Uh, well, compassion, compassion is like one of those down deep root parts of the human condition, you know, and it's also the motivating factor of a lot of people that put their energy toward politics. Like even if they're misguided or maybe if it's just poorly written or, it's it's maybe they're being tricked. Like compassion is one of those levers on the human heart that people use to pull them into mass movements of I all kinds. Feel your pain. Right. So if you give power to compassion, it inverts. Like the person you put to represent you in a, in a position of power now doesn't feel the compassion you elected them to express. <laughs> And again, like it, again, it should be noted, this isn't certain, it's not just about the types of people who are attracted to positions of power, it's anyone who's put in that position of power. Yeah, I believe this experiment tested both, that there was one version of it where it was random, and there was another version of it where the subjects were kind of allowed to self-identify, or there was some way that they measurably put them into two groups of people who were high power in their life and not. I'm and not you, sure quite you how remember you remember if like the, uh, the results were different depending on that? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. The details, You know, again, a lot of what this detailed. book is, like, like just so that you guys know, like, this book is very small. <laughs> this is, uh, it's almost a reading list. It's almost like yes. here is a primer of things you should read by people smarter than me. Well, to, we're, we're to getting get to the meat and potatoes. This is really just set up to, to sort of the point of this. Um, but one more experiment that I think we should talk about. That's sure. uh, Jory La Joris Lammers from Tilburg University and Adam Galinsky of the Kellogg School of Management conducted a series, a battery of experiments to designed to test how having a sense of power influences a person's moral standards. Let's talk yeah. about their experiment. This was, this was the hypocrisy study. And uh, this is, for me, just the most interesting of all of them. Like, almost like this is this one ranks up with Milgram for me as far as its implications. Uh, but it's 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 why social sciences are soft sciences. <laughs> so the thing with all of these is a lot of your data is the product of high numbers and low reliability. <laughs> so your data is self-reported, right? This these experiments are almost entirely self-reported results because we're talking about 
your sense of moral, you know, offendedness. <laughs> but um, the, all of these studies are designed to get at the discrepancy between what a person's uh, degree of tolerance or condemnation is for others versus the amount of allowances that they give themselves for those same moral infractions. And they covered everything from stealing to stealing a bicycle to finding a bag of money to like they're they're cheating at lottery numbers like they're they're all they're, but this is not really happening. This is not a science. This is not a Stanford prison experiment. This is people self-reporting in surveys after participating in a in a in a power dynamic, right? So, uh, but the result is staggering for me. When I read this, I was amazed because what they did in their final experiment was they separated the power group into two categories, and these are self these are people self-identifying. I'm in the power group. People self-identifying. I'm in the subordinate group. And then they said to the people in the power that self-identified as powerful people, uh, tell me an example of a time in your life you were in a position of power and it was legitimate. And then tell then the other group says, tell me a story about a time in your life when you were in a position of power that you felt was illegitimate. Right. So these are people self-selected as as the power group, but talking about a, a time that they that their power was illegitimate. And they have the opposite reaction of the rest of the power group. They become self-critical and tolerant of others while the legitimate power group is tolerant of themselves and takes leniency and breaks rules but is draconian toward others. And so to me, that's like the first scientific study I've ever seen that confirms the hypothesis. It's all about the sense of legitimacy. Right. Elaborate on that. Why is that important? Because it's in their head too. It's, 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 it's their sense of legitimacy is a social phenomenon. It's based on the people they interact with in their lives and whether they confirm that sense of legitimacy by social means, right? We do this all the time with each other where we confirm each other's behaviors and attitudes and amen or whatever the expression is like <laughs> truth, brother. Uh, and if you undermine a person in power's sense of legitimacy, then they become self-critical and these social phenomenon, like it's almost like a silver bullet. It's like, it's like if you could expand on this and, and <laughs> I don't know how to effectively. Well, I think one of the, uh, the interesting phrases that comes out of this, the, the researchers dubbed it hypocrisy as hypocrisy, opposed to hypocrisy. Yeah. So hypocrisy right. is when you are more critical because you believe your power to be illegitimate. So you're actually more critical of yourself, which so is you're important. watching yourself. Uh, it's the, it's the delegitimization of the supposed legitimate authority is the, in a sense, the silver bullet that we're looking for here, because it actually makes the people who are in those positions question themselves even harder than the yeah. average person would. And, and if you look at the world that way, then the entire election process becomes this dance it's like a it's like a rain dance for legitimacy to rain down from the ballot box. Like <laughs> like that's literally what it is. It's this ritual that this particular crop of primates has come up with to invest authority in, you know, whatever yes. crown or throne right. they've come up with. The people have spoken. It's the will of the people that I'm here. And yeah. uh, because of that, people are mentally enslaved in their minds. This is um, the, the most dangerous superstition that Larkin Rose talks about. This it is totally what it is. boils down to. And uh, it's. 
there it is in an experiment form. And uh, again, you know, whatever people make of the self-reporting aspects and of all of this, at any rate, there is something there. And this goes back to what I've talked about many times with laughing at tyrants and other things like this. Just laughing at yeah. the stupidity of it yeah. is actually something productive, is something positive that we can do that actually dismantles their perceived legitimacy. So I think yeah. it's an important aspect the of other this thing that gets I'm saying neglected. Is- if, if this is one study where this had these dramatically significant results, wouldn't you want to go and repeat all of the other studies and see, does illegitimate power have a reversing effect on lying? Does it have a reversing effect there, on empathy? Yeah, there does was it- an element of that to the Milgram experiment because uh, they conducted that experiment, as people might know, they'd conducted many times in many different iterations. And some of them were conducted on campus um with the you know the white lab coats and everything yeah and, you know and others were conducted in kind of seedy office buildings downtown in in a detached from the academic setting and people were more likely to, to say no when it was in that setting rather than in the prestigious hallowed halls of academia so again it's the idea is this legitimate power that's giving me these instructions or is it illegitimate and that's so much of what this comes back down to yeah so Taking all of that, and there is so much detail in there, people really should read the book to to read about these different experiments and how they relate. But this is really just the setup to your kicker, which is your proposal for some sort of experiment that could be conducted um, in some form. And you've got some ideas of how it can be done, but some form that we can push this a little bit further and really see what makes what what's making things tick here. And is there are there independent variables that can be tweaked to make people more or less compliant with authority and things like this? Let's hear about your idea for a, an experiment that can and should be conducted. Sure. Well, this is where it sort of gets a little interactive. The um, the version of the book that's on Amazon right now and the one that I have in stock is like the fifth or sixth edition. And that's because every time I do a talk, every time I do an interview or something, people send me, look at this experiment, look at this you know story, look at this thing going on. And there's a, a feedback mechanism that's happening. So I'm inviting listeners to do that. Send me send me your experiments <laughs> uh, because there's going to be future editions of this book. And I'm going to and I have I have other than the one currently published, I have other designs that I want to write up. But in the in the current edition, there's an experiment written up that I titled uh, Police Brutality and Experimental View. And the hypothesis is that uh, people will intervene in an instance of uh, illegitimate aggressive force more often if uh, they don't think the power is legitimate. That, that, there is a, that there's a measurable difference between the way that a person responds to aggression and the way that people respond to aggression with a badge. And so this experiment was devised uh, – Fairly quickly at first, but now I've had a lot of experts look at it and find the problems and we've tweaked it and we've added to it. And we've got essentially like a contrived scenario where a person is witness to another person being brutalized uh, as a pre-recording, just like just like uh, Milgram's was. Milgram's recordings were technically they were pre-recorded for uh, consistency. But half the subjects see a cop beating up a guy and half the subjects see a civilian beating up the guy. And the question is what if ever or when if ever do they intervene? Uh, And we can walk through it step by step if you want. You want to go through the whole thing? let's do it. Let's start with uh, where you're thinking this would take place and in what way you're recruiting people for this. 
so as published, uh, the, the idea was to do it in a shopping mall or some place where there's rentable space. Like any, any time, if you've ever been approached by someone and they said, do you want to take a survey? Do you want to watch a movie trailer? Do you want to participate in some whatever? Because it gives you an opportunity to sort of admit that it's a, a, a social experiment in some way and potentially even secure a waiver of some kind. Um, because you're watching violent video, you're tricking them into watching a violent video they think is real. And so you want at least some, some degree of consent, <laughs> right? And this is uh, a sticky one because you can't give complete informed consent on a social experiment. Uh, but the APA hasn't solved that problem either. So <laughs> uh, I think the best you can do is sort of brace them for what they're in for, you know? And uh, account for the worst. So the idea, I mean, you could say something like, oh, do you want to see a, you know, a movie trailer that involves violence or something? Right. Yeah, that was the proposal that I landed on in this edition was if you could get them to say that they were willing to watch a movie trailer that that had realistic violence, then tricking them into watching a, a security feed that depicted violence was fair game. Right. The other the other uh, standard that came out of the discussion was someone suggested uh, anything that would be readily available on evening news should be fair game because that's culturally what we expect. Yeah. And um, that envelope has been pushed in recent years, hasn't it? So there you yeah. go. Yeah. I mean, that's the other thing there, there's an element of this book that is about renegotiating all of these ethical questions. And so I'm open to that feedback too. Uh, nobody's run one of these simulations as far as I know. Uh, although I invite them to. Right. So under one pretense or another, you get the person in the room to, they think yeah. they're going to watch a trailer or whatever it is. And, right. but they are actually, the, while, so yeah, I'll let you set it up. Let's talk some, I guess, uh, architecture here for a second. So you, you, you approach them with a clipboard in the mall. You say, follow me. I'm going to show you the video in this back room. You walk them down a hallway where it has to be obvious that there's a video camera and maybe there's something in the room that's recognizable, like a carpet or a potted plant or, or something that, that they'll reference when they see the feed later. Then you take them into a room. You say, please fill out this questionnaire uh, and wait here uh, while we'll get the next group together or whatever. And now they're sitting in a room where they're looking at a screen that looks like the security feed of the hall they just came from. Does that make sense? So So they should just by context be – tricked into thinking the video feed is the hall they just came from because of the rug because of the potted plant whatever but it is a pre-recorded video it is a pre-recorded video that plays after they sign the waiver <laughs> so then you have a personality profile you've got them to sit there with a clipboard and fill out what they think is getting them a ten dollar walmart gift card or whatever which i think we should give them uh <laughs> um and so you can get name, you can get marital status, you can get whatever kind of socially interesting rubric you want on on your subjects' profiles. You can ask them even interesting questions, like I proposed asking them whether they were publicly schooled or homeschooled, if that made a difference, or if they'd ever heard of the Milgram experiment, like just yes or no. Have you ever heard of the Milgram experiment? Because that might make a significant – if you could show that that alone made a significant difference, that's cool. Um, but then uh, – the surveyor comes out with another participant and this is a confederate of the experiment and they give them their clipboard and thank them and give them their card and they walk across and then they go into the hallway. And the moment they go into the hallway, 
the video becomes a recording of them being assaulted by someone for unclear reasons, right? And uh, I propose that this should be done with uh, stunt choreographers to make sure it is as picture perfect as possible because you don't want anything to trigger you, – you don't want to contaminate the samples. You want a clear subject difference where one variable is he's a police officer assaulting someone and one variable is he's a civilian uh, assaulting someone. And the question is when does the subject, if ever – open the door and we're calling opening the door to go into the hallway is intervening. I don't care what they were going to do. I don't care if it was call the police. I don't care if it was take out a camera. I don't care if they imagined they were going to physically remove the guy at that point. They did. They took physical action to leave one scene and enter another. I'm calling that an inter intervention. And then you interview them and then you just want to pick their brain. You want to say, what were you planning? What did you think? How did you react? Collect as much immediate data as you can and then uh, someone proposed, and I think it's a good idea, so as Dr. Stephanie Murphy, that you do an exit interview that's off the record with a counselor you have on board to say, if this was too traumatic, if you feel like you want to talk more, like here's a professional who deals with trauma in case there's any sort of triggering that happens with anybody. Maybe there's because you don't know. You don't yeah, know what you someone can... may have been a victim of police brutality or something. Yeah, who right. Knows, right. Yeah. Okay, so sure. the, yeah, so um, the and the hypothesis is that people would be more likely to respond when there is not a badge involved. Let me read it because the hypothesis is just like a paragraph in here. Uh, 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 there are three. Given the opportunity, a significant portion of the general population will not intervene in a clear incident of unprovoked police brutality. Uh, number two. There will be a statistically significant difference between the percentage of people who will intervene in an incident of police brutality and people who will intervene in an incident of brutality by someone in civilian clothes. Hypothesis number three, demographic information, personality, socioeconomic lifestyle, or other information can be discovered, which correlates with high rates of intervention in an incident of police brutality, which will allow us to begin to create a psychological profile of those willing to intervene against corrupt authority. I'm on board. I think it sounds like a cool experiment. I think it would definitely teach us something. Um, it's been, what, six, seven, eight years since you came up with this? So you've made a lot of progress. Well, on it, right? yeah, I guess the pitch was the experiment itself. It turned out to be an expensive price tag. I, ha I had a... Uh, what do you call it? A production company that actually does this kind of thing. Quoted me something like $100,000. It's in the book. Mm -hmm. wow. uh, but I've also had psychology students reach out to me and say that they don't even think it violates the APA guidelines and they can do it in their universities. And so if that's the case, yeah, take it and run with it. You know, like open source all of it. Uh, and I encourage people to do that and devise their own experiments and, you know, start networking the data. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it needs to be thought out and, and the, mm -hmm. all the pieces need to be in place. So I would recommend people read the book to see the way that you set it up and the things that you talk about. But yeah, we definitely need something like this. And and let's elaborate on on the on why, because some people might be thinking, oh, who cares? We know we already know. Well, I mean, worst case scenario, the spookiest reason why is because if power controls where the money in psychology research goes, power is not going to allow itself to be researched. <laughs> So because of this very phenomenon of authoritarian sociopathy, leaving that in the hands of people in power to research 
is a contradiction. It's a bias. It's uh, it might even invalidate the data. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, which actually ties back to an interview I had just a couple months ago with Dr. Bruce Levine, where we were talking about resisting illegitimate authority um, specifically. Yeah. And he was talking about the way that the, the psychological profession has been structured around these perceived um, legitimate powers and authorities that he himself, as a practicing psychiatrist, has been fighting against most of his career. Yeah. I mean, that that happens, obviously, because it is a power structure and because because this is not like a feature of the Republican Party or the Catholic Church or the whatever. It's a feature of human beings, the primate, and anytime there's more than 20 of them in a room, they're going to start building these little hierarchies and they're going to start having these sorts of effects on their psychology. So, <laughs> and, be aware uh, of yeah, it. And, and I think people should reflect on the fact just how far the Milgram experiment has penetrated into the popular consciousness. A lot of people will, will have heard about that, even people who aren't particularly interested in psychology or uh, authoritarianism or things like that probably at least yeah. have heard of this experiment. And that is important because it does create at least the space for the conversation to open up the conversation about power and how it operates and what does it mean and are you willing to obey? And I think that's where... A lot of this ultimately comes back to, for me, I, okay, I mean, I think it is interesting, and I'm interested in the, these types of experiments in and of themselves, but I think one of the, the sort of meta effects of these types of things is to at least get people to step back and question themselves, and to think, and to reflect, and yeah. does this affect me, and how so, and what would I do in that situation? And I think which, it is which, something that we need to open the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. It's, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's, it's something about this field of study innately is everybody immediately asks the question well what would i do (laughs) right and we all want to believe we all want to believe that we're on the side that disobeys uh but the statistics bear out that we probably aren't and so that creates a need you know to like to recognize when this is happening to yourself i guess like when uh when are you just going along to get along and do you have to Yes. And if the answer is no, then what are you doing? Yeah. And it puts you in that mind frame. I mean, if I was ever in a Milgram experiment, I would know, oh, this is this is a Milgram experiment. You'd know immediately. <laughs> because I know about the experiment. So <laughs> right. that influences the way I would actually act in a real life situation looking like well, that. Well, I bet that it I bet that it would. But that's interesting data, too. Like if you could demonstrate if you could demonstrate the kind of uh, outreach that was statistically effective at actually changing people's behavior in a controlled environment, that's kind of powerful. Yeah. That's, uh, that's so a very... So once this experiment that you're proposing here has been conducted thousands of times with millions of participants all around the globe, and then somehow we can get some of those same participants into a second study <laughs> to see how they yeah. would react. <laughs> it's a well, large project, huh? <laughs> part of it part of it is, and, and this is going to be in successive editions, I don't think that I don't think that it's worth the data to price tag ratio. I don't think that that I think what I've designed at the moment is an expensive way to get this data, and I think that there are less expensive ways to do it. And so I've been devising that, and I've been getting suggestions about that too. Um, because also, uh, technology is more advanced all the time. Like it's 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 plausible that we could use the digital infrastructure that's around us already, and we don't need to rent the mall, and we don't need to like dress up the cop, and we don't need to like. Um, it's it's one of the things I said earlier. It's about having lots of data 
that's imprecise. Like that's that's the, what you want. You want 2,000 people to give you imprecise data so you can see the big bell curves. And the way this is designed right now, it's calling for something like 200 participants, and that's expensive. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's it's hot, low volume of data, but maybe too precise. Yep. Um, yep. 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 And yeah, I, but since this is already a, an experiment that involves simulated elements to it, um, yeah. You know, how how far can you take that, and does it have to be physically in this space in the model? Well, I don't think so at all. We've been talking about devising simulations online uh, pretty much since this since we first started talking about this and then um i've been thinking recently that the way to do it is video games because video games cause the player to make in world calculations very much like real world calculations uh that are kind of ethical in nature or can be or can be orchestrated to be um and so uh the other thing is this is not my area of expertise like I am in a way asking other people to take this up, uh, even in an amateur way. <laughs> like, um, so one of the things I'd like to devise is the types of things that you could do from your home or even among friends. Like, if you could, if you could simulate a measured result in a safe way over dinner, <laughs> like that'd be really powerful to be able to do with friends or to do at parties or. <laughs> Absolutely. Something like well, that. There are many different ways that we could take something like this and run with it. So I'm excited to see the different ideas that corporate board members will have in the comment section here. Um, and also, I'm assuming people will probably want to get in touch with you and share some of their ideas. What's the best way for people I'm, to I'm get in contact I'm always happy to, to just uh, in contact with me. Davi at bitcoin.bombs.com is the easiest email to get me. Yeah. All right. And I'll link uh, that in the show notes so people can see that. And uh I think we're going to leave it there for today on this topic. It's such a huge topic and there's so many different bits and rabbit holes we could get into. But is there anything else you'd like to leave people with on this topic before we leave it here? Uh, well, it's it's kind of meta. It's because being willing to question the authority of the man in the lab coat de facto means you can question the authority of the university that employs him which de facto means you can question whatever authority it is that makes you think you're not an amateur psychologist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So in fact, when you said that word amateur, I wanted to say, you know, that's not necessarily a pejorative, is it? Yeah. It's, I don't think of it as uh, a pejorative. I called it a renegade psychological experiment uh, because we are all independently, naturally scientists in some sense you know synthesizing the, the evidence of our senses and applying it and we all have to do that at some level and so let's really do it <laughs> yeah exactly don't take other people's word for it um but get good ideas from other people and apply them when you can uh yeah lots of things to think about and i will just direct people once again uh, as i say this uh, you've talked about this in numerous lectures and and there's different permutations of this available online i'll direct people to the book um because it'll probably sure. be the one-stop shop for this. But uh, uh, lots of different threads here that people can pick up and, uh, and examine. So we're going to leave it there for today. Davi Barker, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope we have the chance to talk again in the future. Absolutely. I had a great time. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report subscriber. A weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs and once a month 
a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.